Hello again, I'm Brian Norcross. This is podcast number nine here from the WPLG Local 10 Podcast Studio here in South Florida. We talk about weather, we talk about hurricanes especially, and my partner in this, Luke Doris, is not with us again today. He's been off getting married. He'll be back next week ready to get back to work, I'm told. So uh, good for Luke, and uh, congratulations to Luke and Kelly. So today we're going to talk about one of the great South Florida hurricanes, the deadliest South Florida hurricane of them all. It was 90 years ago next month. It's called, uh, we call it, the Great Okeechobee Hurricane of 1928. And it kind of resonates today because of everything going on with the lake and the red tide on the southwest coast and the algae uh, up in, uh, on the Treasure Coast and the Central Florida coast. It's uh, a lot of stuff going on with Lake Okeechobee that here in Miami, it feels a little distant, but it really isn't. It really is part uh, a key part of how we live here in South Florida. And we're going to talk to the guy who literally wrote the book about the 1928 Okeechobee hurricane. His name is Elliot Kleinberg. He has deep roots here in Miami and uh, in South Florida. And he's with the Palm Beach Post now and has been for many years. We'll talk to him in just a few minutes. We're recording this on Wednesday, August the 15th, 2018. If you're listening at some point in the future, you got to tune in to Local 10 or check the Max Tracker app or the Local 10 weather app and get the current information on anything going on in the tropics, of which there is very little. We had subtropical storm Ernesto, another one of these high-latitude systems. Really didn't start as a tropical system. Probably will never get totally tropical heading out into the North Atlantic. No threat there. And across the tropical Atlantic, where normally here in August we'd be looking very closely, here being the 15th of August, we usually think the 15th to the 20th is when the really busy part of the hurricane season uh, kicks in. We've never had a hurricane in South Florida before August 15th in the month of August I'm talking about. And so we generally think about this date, but there is just nothing going on because the Atlantic in many, many ways is uh, totally unfavorable at this point. But that doesn't mean that we can't get a week that we have a pocket of favorability like we did in 1992. So we don't let down our guard. We just are um, pleased with the fact that nothing is uh, imminent that we see right now. So our podcast is sponsored by your neighbors of the Miccosukee tribe. Rain or shine, win big. Visit Miccosukee.com and discover the winner in you. So let me take you back to the 1920s in South Florida. We're going to start in 1926. So Miami was booming like uh, maybe no place has ever boomed in the history of the world before people were pouring in there was no place to stay um, they were selling and selling and reselling the land anything you could build on and it was happening elsewhere in south florida too but it was especially happening in miami and three hurricanes come by south florida that year in july there was a side swipe it went up and had a bigger effect actually in central florida right along the coast it wasn't an especially strong storm, but it did a little bit of damage along the South Florida coast. And then in September of 1926, the Great Miami Hurricane, a Category 4 that's devastated Dade and Broward County. It's the landmark storm for the South Florida, uh, Southeast Florida, uh, Dade and Broward region because uh, not only did it devastate uh, Miami-Dade County where it hit, it also completely destroyed Hollywood, Dania, and downtown Fort Lauderdale, which were not very big, but were being developed uh, at that time. And then a month later, there was another Category 4 storm that just uh, destroyed a tremendous number of buildings in Havana and was moving north right toward Miami. And it was, uh, I don't know if panic is too strong a word, in the city. Uh, people flocked to the Weather Bureau office in downtown Miami, and it ended up veering off the Keys and uh, moved through the Bahamas. So it, it was, but it was a great hurricane, a long remembered hurricane in Havana. Then skip ahead two years. 1927 was a quiet season. Uh, all the storms stayed well offshore. Skip ahead to August of 1928. Miami News, uh, which was a great newspaper of the era, the News and the Herald competed. Uh, wholeheartedly for decades and decades in the 20th century here in Miami. And uh, they talked about this storm in early August 1928 moving through the Bahamas. And the, uh, there was not big concern 
in South Florida, although they uh, they didn't issue hurricane warnings anywhere on the uh, southeast coast uh, on that uh, early uh, developing situation as it was in the Bahamas. Less than a week later, uh, it uh, actually did hit up near Fort Pierce. So that was the first storm in 1928. Then a week later, a hurricane came out of the Caribbean and hit Big Pine Key as a strong tropical storm, 70-mile-an-hour tropical storm, did damage along the west coast as it's tracked just offshore of the panhandle, and the bad weather was spread across the state, especially heavy rain, but uh, it never uh, regained hurricane strength. And then actually one month later, exactly one month in the middle of September of 1928, Puerto Rico is destroyed by a Category 5 hurricane. It took the same track that Maria took, and it was stronger than Maria, if you can imagine. If you remember the coverage of Hurricane Maria last year, Puerto Rico, they talked about it being the worst hurricane in 90 years, the worst hurricane since 1928. Well, this was the storm, and it headed in the direction of Florida. And uh, on Friday, September 14th, the headline in the Miami News Uh, said that the chief meteorologist in Miami said it's improbable that the storm will affect the east coast of Florida unless it changes course (laughs) again. Uh, uh, You know, (laughs) that's a great way to put it. The next day, which was a Saturday, Nassau was uh, feared in the path of the storm. Indeed, uh, it, uh, it felt the effects of the storm, and the hurricane threat for Miami was regarded as negligible. That Sunday, it uh, indeed was confirmed that the dangerous blow was going to miss Miami, but that evening it hit West Palm Beach. The Miami News said that the damage in West Palm Beach was worse than Miami had suffered in 1926, which is hard to believe. All right, so that uh, sets the stage. This uh, monster hurricane has destroyed Puerto Rico. It's coming towards South Florida. It kind of veers kind of at the last minute into West Palm Beach. And that brings us to what happened when it hit. L.A. Kleinberg, uh, for decades, 31 years, he tells me, has been a reporter at the Palm Beach Post. His father was the last editor of the Miami News, the great Miami News, uh, when it was uh, kind of bought by the Herald and then closed down in 1988. Uh, Howard Kleinberg, and he's written a number of books about the history of South Florida. One of the great ones that he wrote was called The Way We Were that he compiled, really. It's a fantastic book about uh, Miami history along with others. And Elliot, his son, wrote the book on the 1928 hurricane called Black Cloud, the Deadly Hurricane of 1928. Elliot, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me, Brian. And uh, I remember reading your book, and I refreshed myself here, the the details of the complications related to the 1928 hurricane, I think in some ways still resonate today. But let's start, uh, that's related to Lake Okeechobee. Let's start talking about what happened when this storm came ashore in West Palm, what they knew at the time, and uh, how ready were they? Well, I say when I do my talks that uh, with all of their technology and computers and jet planes and satellites, today's weather forecasters have uh, one other thing that their counterparts in the 1920s did not have, which is humility. Uh, you'll You'll recall that even on Sunday afternoon, when Andrew, uh, well, actually Sunday afternoon, at one point they still were saying that it might, that Boca might be ground zero. Mm-hmm. And of course, it was, you know, 80 miles to the south. And even as Andrew was coming ashore in Homestead, the hurricane warnings were still in place from Vero Beach to Key West. And the weather people didn't, wouldn't refuse to, you know, they weren't going to shrink the cone, so to speak. But in, 19, in 1928, the Weather Service, as you mentioned, said uh, flat out uh, as late as Saturday afternoon uh, and the storm struck, uh, the, the first parts of the storm started showing up in West Palm Beach by Sunday morning. But as late as Saturday afternoon, they were saying uh, this storm is not going to, to hit South Florida. It's going to make one of those classic curves that we've seen those storms make so many times when they go north through the middle of the Atlantic and hit the cold water and go yeah, away. So called recurve, well, actually. Right. The well, yeah. the one of the greatest pieces of 
um, uh, you know, uh, uh, fancy wording to, to cover themselves was that on Saturday afternoon, the Weather Service office in Miami, uh, actually it might have been in Jacksonville where they were doing the hurricanes at the time, said recurve not yet indicated, yeah. which, which I always thought was kind of amazing because, in fact, it did eventually recurve, but instead of recurving, Towards around Bermuda, it recurved around Sebring right. uh, after it had already done tremendous damage. So, all of a sudden on Saturday night, the weather service, you know, around dinner time, the weather service says, "No, this thing's going to hit, and it's going to be bad." But at that point, what could you do? Uh, we're talking 1928. You did not have CNN. You did not have the internet. You did not have television. Um, uh, you had radio, but even in the in the 20s, radio was a luxury, and it was certainly a luxury for the poorer people who were in the storm's path, which I'm sure we're going to get into that exactly, aspect. Yeah. And people say to me, they say to me, well, uh, for many years, people said the flawed forecast added to the deaths and destruction. And I, and I what I say in my talks is I say, well, that, that may be true to some extent, but in order to have been... Uh, misled by the flawed forecast, you would have had to have heard the flawed forecast, which many people didn't, because I've been in the newspaper business my entire adult life, but even I'll be the first to admit that a newspaper is only as good as uh, what they knew 12 hours earlier. Um, and uh, and again, there was no TV or anything like that, the radio. Um, and and then the question is, well, even if they knew the storm was coming, and there were many people in in the West Palm Beach area and out around the lake who knew there was a chance that this thing was coming, but what could they do? Number one, in 1928, not everybody had a car. I know that's amazing to believe. But if you were living around the uh, in West Palm Beach, well, you know, what do you do? Go to Miami? Do you go to – there was no interstate. And if you lived around the lake, you had three options. Well, you really didn't. The one option was to go out west on US-27 to Fort Myers, but it wasn't built yet. It wasn't there. Right. The other option was the little two-lane road that follows the east coast of Lake Okeechobee, which I did it about a year ago, and it's still a slow drive. Uh, the third option was towards the coast, towards West Palm. Well, who on earth would do that? So really, the people around the lake had nowhere to go, even if they knew that this storm was coming at them. Well, the people around the lake... Um... Uh, which is sort of the second phase of, of this thing. But the people around the lake, I understood, and tell me if this is uh, wrong, this is what I always understood, some of them actually kind of knew the storm was coming, actually thought, well, let's get to a little higher ground. It's not like they didn't know that there was low ground there. But but somehow the storm was delayed from when they thought it was going to get there. So it actually didn't really hit at the lake until late at night. Uh, am I right about that? And, and somehow that, you know, that kind of threw them off, that it was delayed by six or 12 hours. Well, there was a lot of confusion about when and where the storm was going to hit. And again, the issue becomes like, well, even if you knew, well, where could you go and what what could you do? The worst case scenario is one of these monster storms striking at night. Uh, because your you, you, your re ability to reaction is so much more limited. And then people also say, well, why didn't the storm lose strength between the coast and the lake? And um, Brian, I mean, I know you've talked about this. Um, between the coast and the lake was about 30 to 40 miles of swamp. And a storm that's barreling in, they don't know what the what the speed what what the wind speed was. It might have been a five. The best they can guess is that it was at least 140, 145 miles an hour. So, in those 40 miles, when you've got this monstrosity, how much is it going to weaken in just a 40 mile crossing of 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 land? Maybe it maybe it dropped five miles an hour, 10 miles an hour. Really, that we're not talking about a lot. And the most important thing, and the folks at the Hurricane Center were able to help me on this when I was writing Black Cloud in 2003 for the 75th anniversary. They were able to go through line by line and explain to me the mechanics of it because, you know, I'm not a weatherman. I'm not a, you know, and, and I said, well, the one part that's always confused me is the storm was coming in from the coast, so it was coming from east to west. So why did all the water wash from the lake east into the countryside, east and south? Mm -hmm. And basically the way it was explained to me was is that, of course, a hurricane is a gigantic cyclone going counterclockwise, and that it came at an angle. And as it came at the angle, the winds came from – when it, it went to the north end of the lake, and the winds actually came from north to south. 
and Brian Jarvanen at the old, at the Hurricane Center, uh-huh. who who helped me on this, he said if it had been daylight, you would have seen fish flopping around on the dry lake bed, just off the uh, Okitanti Marina, in the town of Okeechobee, because it took all that water, and you know what how much water we're talking about. That lake is three quarters the size of Rhode Island, trillions of gallons of water, and it came from the north to the south, and pushed all of that water down to the only part of the lake that had a substantial population, which was that southeast corner. And it just, that dike, that, that, that's, it, all they had then was a six-foot dike made out of basically clay. It probably lasted five minutes. Right. All right, so let's, let's break this down step by step. First of all, what happened in West Palm Beach? What happened to the town of West Palm Beach, and what kind of town was that in 1928? Well, of course, West Palm Beach was a lot smaller than, than it is now. But you have to understand that this storm did do damage. It blew out windows in Miami. Right. It knocked a train a off big, the track. It was a big, big hurricane. Yes. It was humongous. It knocked the trains off the track in Deerfield Beach. It, uh, it had tropical storm force winds probably as far north as Vero Beach. The, uh, the most likely spot of landfall was right on the Lake Worth-West Palm Beach line, which, of course, is smack dead center in Palm Beach County, the Jupiter Lighthouse, which, as you know, is not that close to West Palm, uh, swayed 17 inches at the top. And and according to the lighthouse keeper, mortar squeezed from between the bricks like uh, toothpaste coming out of a tube. Uh, when I was working on this, the store, on the book, I did a talk in Boynton Beach. And I said, uh, well, we think that the eye went no further south than Lake Worth. And a lady raised her hand and said, excuse me, you're wrong, because I was there. Mm-hmm. So the best we can get from, from uh, eyewitness accounts is that the eye stretched from Riviera Beach to Delray Beach, which if you're familiar with Palm Beach County geography, that's, that's probably eye. about 20, 25 miles. Um, when you consider what the eye of Andrew was, which was considerably smaller, or the eye of Charlie, this was a gigantic eye, which means it was a gigantic system. And um, it just wasn't going to slow down uh, between the coast and the lake. Now, in West Palm Beach, there was tremendous damage, not a tremendous loss of life. Um, Palm Beach, of course, uh, and, and you know, Brian, from your work you've done, that storm surge in Palm Beach County is not what it is in Dade County, Miami-Dade County, because in Palm Beach County, uh, you go just offshore and the water drops precipitously, and so the storm surge is kind of dissipated. Right. And so, whereas in Biscayne Bay, where the whole thing's 20 feet, 20 feet deep at most, that's how you end up with sailboats and trees. So the, the storm surge in the island of Palm Beach was not dramatic, and of course all the people that lived there were up north because it was the summer, um, but there were boats up on seawalls, there was tremendous beach erosion, and then it crossed over that intracoastal and into downtown West Palm, and one of the most profound things I recall is that some engineers went down to Lantana and found that during the real estate boom, houses in South Florida, many of them had not been bolted to the slab. They figured the weight of the house would be enough. Well, when a hurricane comes along and it pushes a house 14 inches on a slab, you have to throw the house away. Uh, There were bridges. There was a bridge that crossed the intercoastal in Lantana that was one of those old-fashioned bridges that turned sideways, and it was completely destroyed. So there was considerable damage in, in, in coastal Palm Beach County. All right, but then, then the issue really came about the lake. So let's just talk about Lake Okeechobee, uh, you know, as it, how it worked originally and, and then, then how it evolved before the hurricane, because this hurricane really was a repeat of the 1926 hurricane. It was just translated up to Palm Beach County. It was this giant storm. Like it's kind of like a Hurricane Irma kind of storm, a giant storm with a huge circulation that produced this monstrous effect over a large area. So, so the Lake Okeechobee, Lake Okeechobee is this monstrous lake, the way the Mother Nature designed it, and I'm just trying to boil this down, is the water in the rainy season flows into it. It would overflow the, the bottom lip of the lake into this sheet of water that would move south across the good part, almost all of the southern Florida peninsula, as Marjorie Stoneman Douglas called it, the river of grass. And that fresh water out of the lake would go all the way down to uh, Florida Bay. Uh, and, and, but then when they elected to try and start to farm it, that 
that uh, yearly flooding ritual was not going to work, so they tried to dam it up a little bit and control the water in all variety of different uh, ways over those years before the boom in the mid-20s. Do, do I have that right? Well, yeah. Uh, you know, there's there's a wonderful expression that I heard once that says, uh, if you look at the Florida, at the history of Florida and its environment, um, there's a theme that runs through it, which is everything is great and somebody comes along and messes it up. Um, in this case, the person who is pretty much credited, uh, I don't know if credited is the right word, with messing it up is Napoleon Bonaparte Broward. Who, yeah, the, of uh, the canals, yes, he put in the who, canals. Who, who, who created the canals that drained the Everglades, and um, a lot of people now believe that it was probably the greatest environmental catastrophe in the history of Florida and perhaps the whole country. Got him a county named after him, but um, it wasn't like nobody was complaining. Marjorie Stoneman Douglas's father, who ran the editorial board at the Miami Herald, said, I think if we do this, we're going to really mess up the natural rain machine. Because it seems to me that there's a natural machine where the water comes down, it evaporates, and everything seems to work great. And uh, But nobody was listening because they had stars in their eyes, or in this case, dollar signs. Because what they had was this gigantic swamp west of Miami and west of Fort Lauderdale and west of West Palm Beach that nobody thought had any value. So let's drain it and put in farms. Well, here you've got Lake Okeechobee, and it's just got a shoreline. And whenever the lake uh, filled up, it overflowed. Uh, the lake is very shallow, and if you want to do an experiment, walk across your kitchen floor with a frying pan that's filled to the brim, and it's going to, it's going to splash over. So the water is so shallow that it's like a giant frying pan. It has nowhere to go. So there was an, a, a, a wind incident about five or six years ago where uh, the north end of the lake was eight feet higher than the south end of the lake, which, of course, isn't a, isn't a problem now, but it was then. So they invited all these farmers to come in. They said, we're going to drain the Everglades. We're going to put up all these farms. And again, we're not talking about sugar yet. Sugar didn't show up until the 30s and 40s. We're talking about mom and pops growing lettuce and peppers and, and, and the tomatoes. And if you were sitting in your kitchen in New Jersey in January in the 20s and eating a piece of lettuce, it probably came from Palm Beach County, Florida. And that's because so, the, the, the ground was given to be very, very rich uh, right. farmland, right? The idea that this had been muck for forever, as long as the Florida Peninsula had been there, uh, all that time you had this muck building up that they believed would be the richest farmland uh, that you could possibly have. And, and in fact, it was. But of course, what they didn't take into account is that eventually the muck dries up and blows away. There's a famous pole uh, outside the agriculture station at Bell Glade where they measure how much the muck is vanishing. And it's dropped precipitously in 80 years. So, so these farmers are growing this stuff, and they're complaining to the state that, you know, about once or twice a year, we get a big storm, the wind shifts, and all this water comes in and floods our crops, and we, we're wiped out. So what were your options? Well, your options are to abandon the interior back to nature. And, you know, so humans have never done that. Nice. Or to try to figure out some way to keep that water in the lake. Well, they said, well, let's just build this six-foot dike made out of muck, and that'll hold us as long as the wind doesn't get too bad, you know, like during a hurricane. <laughs> yeah, right. But there was a period there where they weren't having hurricanes, really. You know, the hurricanes came along, and there were, there were hurricanes in the 19th century. But then it was a kind of a long stretch that uh, 1906, early part of the 20th century. But by the time this development really started happening on the southeast coast— there weren't a lot of hurricanes that were affecting uh, Miami, Fort Lauderdale, West Palm Beach, the lake area. Well, we've seen so many times where there's a co there's a co coordination between periods of no hurricanes and periods of development. And because when you go several years and there's no hurricane, it's like, oh, you know, everything's fine. And, um, and, and of course, people sometimes foolishly believe that, that nature spreads out hurricanes evenly. But we know from 2004 that's not the case, and we know from 1926 and 1928 that that's not the case. Right, exactly. Okay, so now they've, they have put in these canals. They're lowering the, the, the lake and, and lowering uh, the water table so that you have large areas that you can now farm, and they've put up this, this six-foot dike. But uh, in 1928, it's a fairly wet year, if I recall, and the lake is fairly high. Is that right? Very high. There have been a lot of heavy rains. Right. I think it started in the spring, actually, before even you had those two storms yeah. uh, before. And and at that time, 
the Kissimmee River from Central Florida still flowed into the lake, uh, if I recall. And so it didn't have to rain over the lake. If it rained north of the lake, that water would flow into Lake Okeechobee. Absolutely. The lake was completely brimming. And in fact, water in some places was already kind of, you know, moving through, you know, coming around around the, this berm. All right. And so this massive storm, and actually when we think about storm surge storms, we all think about Hurricane Katrina, of course, and how it affected New Orleans and affected the Mississippi coast. So Katrina was a giant storm like Irma was uh, last year, like the 1926 and 1928 great hurricanes were. So they produce a tremendous amount of storm surge. But in this case... The wind effect it has its most dramatic effect on the lake, as, as you were saying. It's pushing the water from the north end of the lake to the south or actually to the southeast part of the lake in the first part of the storm. And, you know, the weather people and the emergency people have said to us so many times over the years that quit getting hung up on the wind. Um, Andrew was a Category 5 hurricane. How many people did it kill in South Florida? dozens at most. Um, yeah, so, so which is 15 too many. But the point is, is that there were people, including my family, who were in a Category 5 hurricane who, got, who, when the storm passed, got up and walked out. But here you have a hurricane, the biggest killer in the history of Florida, and in fact, the second biggest killer hurricane in the history of the United States, second only to the Galveston hurricane, which also killed through water. So what you have is you have the second greatest hurricane in terms of death in the history of the United States, and it killed through water. And guess what? It killed in Florida, surrounded by oceans, but it killed through uh, freshwater flooding. Exactly. So the so this freshwater, describe what happened here. So the, the water is pushed by the wind from the north end of the lake to the south end of the lake where you had these farms and actually some towns there. And, and you know, what did people know? What did they do? What did they And what happened to them? Well, um, engineers came through after the storm, and they believed they went through some of the buildings in Belglade, which was the biggest town in that southeast corner of Lake Okeechobee. Um, and they believe that the water got as high as 22 feet above sea level. And um, what happened was, ironically, that above the land, berm, I guess, there, because they're really yeah, above sea level, right? The, the, the berm, ironically, probably added to the problem because it held the water just enough, just for those five or ten minutes or whatever, for that water to kind of build up. Now, it was not a, it was not a wall of water. It was not a tsunami. It was even more horrifying, and I, I actually interviewed people back in the 1980s who had been through the hurricane, who have now passed, and also read numerous eyewitness accounts. And what these people talked about is, is, again, they couldn't go anywhere. So they went into their houses, and they had dinner, and they sat, and they waited. And again, this is at night, on a Sunday night. And they look out, and the water's coming up through the, you know, through the floorboards, and it's coming up to the dining room table. And they climb up on the dining table, and it's coming up to the top, and they climb into the attic. And then the water's coming in the attic. And then the, somebody says, well, we're going to have to punch a hole in the roof, or, or we'll drown in the attic. And they punch the hole in the roof, and of course, there's the hurricane. And, and it, th- th- these stories are so incredibly horrific. And then for the people who were thrown into the water, they were out in 140-mile-an-hour hurricanes. So imagine being out in the middle of the Atlantic Ocean in a 140-mile-an-hour hurricane and holding onto a piece of wood. And people were doing this, except it wasn't the ocean. It was They were over dry land, or sugar fields and, and, and vegetable fields. But all of a sudden, they were in you know, 10-foot waves in, at night and screaming wind. And, and debris, all the water... And debris, probably. And debris, and all the water... And all the water rushed out, and just all these people were drowned. Now, the most important thing to remember about this, and we, we touched on it very briefly at the beginning, is who was living out there. Now, I say in the beginning of my book, why do people always say, why isn't this storm more well-known? I, I call it the most underreported natural disaster in the history of the United States. And part of it is because... People always remember the last disaster, and the 28th storm was followed by the Depression, you know, the stock market crash, the Depression, World War II, bop, 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 bop. But I also say that if it had drowned 3,000 white businessmen in downtown West Palm Beach, or if it would have smashed a black tie affair out on Palm Beach, they'd still be talking about it. Who did it kill? It killed poor black migrant workers living out there in shanty towns, working the fields by day, people who sometimes their boss didn't know their last name. And so these were invisible people 
1928, Florida was the Deep South. These were these were black migrants from the Deep South and the Caribbean. So they weren't the same kind of uh, victims that people would have written about. And these people really had nowhere to go. Some of them were people that didn't live in a house. At the end of the day, they slept under a tree. Where could they go? They drowned. Right, and and were not even accounted for in in many cases, right? No, right, and that and that gets us to the mass grave. All right, so so, so but but you also had uh, there were towns there, and so yes. you had the farmers, and generally these were white families, not necessarily rich white families, but but the generally white families that owned these farms to some degree that hired these migrant workers, right? So you had a a mix there, but the number of people in the high threat areas and the number of people that died were predominantly the black uh, migrant workers. Right. Now, so there were, there were, of course, there were white deaths, and there were white families that, uh, that performed very heroically and, and, and not in keeping with the racial mores of the time. But a lot of these, a lot of these black workers really just had nowhere to go at all. Right. Right. So you have this horrendous situation where uh, if you go back and look at the newspapers, which I just did uh, recently to refresh my memory, the, the events in Lake Okeechobee were not immediately known. The, the events in West Palm Beach were known, but uh, there is a kind of a rumor that something's happened on, on the lake, and then there are these uh, deaths on the lake, and then suddenly, uh, or eventually, really, it's not really sudden, eventually by the end of the week, there is awareness of the scale of the number of deaths and at that time, they were paying the number around 2,500. But, well, of course, we, we think the number is higher than that now. Well, of course, um, we didn't have the technology that we do now. So the governor, whose name was Martin, Martin County's named after him, um, was starting to get noises that, you know, was, listen, something's going on in the interior. And so they sent some people down there. And, of course, they quickly reported back and uh, that there had been this tremendous loss of life. You have to understand that Palm Beach County – um, the areas around the lake were actually very substantial. Um, Pahokee, which is next to Belle Glade, at the time was the second biggest city in Palm Beach County because of this tremendous farm uh, industry. One in nine people in Palm Beach County lived around that lake at the western end of Palm Beach County. So we're talking about a lot of people. But it was cut off from the coast, and, and it was cut off, you know, the communications. So they finally got down there, and that's when they realized the tremendous loss of life. And then another thing happened was, you got to remember, this was the late summer. It was incredibly hot. And if you remember from Andrew, um, standing out there in the rain and the heat and with no air conditioning and everything. So here you had, and the water did not recede for weeks. So now you have standing water with rotting vegetation rotting animals, rotting livestock, and rotting people. So now you've got a serious, serious health crisis. And again, we're talking about 1928. So they said, we've got to get these people out of the water and get them buried or something in a hurry. And so what happened was they were going out there collecting bodies, and they would have to get them to high ground. And once they got them to high ground, there were some cases where they just piled them up in funeral pyres and burned them which is one of the images that then is the reason I called the book Black Cloud, uh, because there's just this, this horrific imagery uh, of these, and you can see the pictures of these bodies burning. Um, and yeah, then they got... Uh, ironically, that uh, the, you know, that's one of the images from the 1935 hurricane in the Keys as well. It was sure. what, what had to be done then to prevent disease. There was just no Correct. option if you couldn't move the, the bodies away. So they got a lot of bodies, and they burned them, or they, in some cases, there were makeshift cemeteries where they put 10 or 20 or 30 bodies. There's a couple of cemeteries that I found mentioned in clips that are now probably someone's backyard, and they don't even know it because they buried them and they didn't mark it. Um, but a lot of bodies were brought to the coast, and the whites and blacks, of course, were separated. And I recall when I was working on the book in 2003, the editor said, well, who made the decision to separate the white and black bodies? And I said, Phil, you must have been sleeping in history class because in 1928, Florida was in the Deep South, and it would have been unimaginable for whites and blacks to be buried in the same right. place. So the whites, about 70 whites, were, were buried in a mass grave in Woodlawn Cemetery, the, white, uh, the, the city-owned cemetery in downtown West Palm Beach. 
about 700, 700 black victims were buried in a mass grave about two, three miles to the north in the black neighborhood where they, they just took a bulldozer, dug a giant hole, and threw the bodies in, much more unceremoniously than the mass grave for the whites. The great tragedy is that then that mass grave was unmarked for six or seven decades. Yes, it was lost. I remember the the uh, discussion about. Well, everybody, this. everybody, you know, everybody in the black neighborhoods of West Palm knew exactly where the mass grave was, but it but it wasn't important to anybody to mark it. But finally, that that was uh, corrected, and now it is uh, noted and marked and and part of the story of the of the hurricane. exactly yes. All right, so let's. Uh, I mean, it was horrendous beyond belief, but let's talk about the next step. So, what's left there is a lake that has no lower lip. So this whole entire area is flooded, and but but on the other hand, there's uh, an economy involved, and so the decision was made to build a big uh, dike around the bottom of the lake. How did that happen? Well, again, they found themselves in the same situation where they said, okay. Uh, this is going to happen again. Do we do we abandon things? Do we give it back to nature? Well, that was not going to. They weren't going to do that. So they so the, the engineers said, well, it's real simple. This lake is ginormous and it's got trillions of gallons. And the next hurricane will do it again. So your options are, you've got to build a gigantic dike. Now it's not a it's not. And I know you've been up here. You, it's not a real dike. It's more like a mound that that surrounds the like lake. A berm. Yes. And um, it took decades. And Herbert Hoover, who was an engineer by trade, um, right around the time he got elected president, came down and surveyed it. And when he became president, he approved the project. And it was not easy. They, You can imagine the politics involved with building a gigantic, you know, millions of dollars. And again, this is right before the Depression, too. And um, so they somehow got the money. And it took them decades to build this thing. And Hoover came down in 19, I think it was 1961, he was in his 80s, to dedicate the dike. They were just now, you know, having sort of the grand opening. Um, and I don't have to tell you that they are continuing to work on the dike. It's an, it's an unfinished project because nature gets involved. And guess what? The dike leaks. Yeah, it, it, it's a earthen... Uh, berm is what it is. It's just a, a mound of, of dirt with a, a road and uh, grass and, and other things that, that they do to hold back lakes that you don't have uh, pressure on it except when there's a hurricane. That's the, that's the bottom line. And the thing is that um, it, it, when they talk about a scenario of a failure, and there, there are tabletops and there are computer programs where they talk about a failure. I've written about them. And we're not talking about the top of the dike. And, and you know from Katrina that where the dike fails, where a dike fails is not at the at the top, it's at the bottom. And in this case, they're not worried about the, the top of the dike like blowing off or collapsing. But what they are worried about is two things. One is the two spots where there are gates, the St. Lucie over to the east coast and the Caloosahatchee over to the west coast. Those gates are very vulnerable when you've got trillions of gallons of water at weighing eight pounds a gallon behind this gate and additionally uh the water percolates up through the through the ground and you can go out and see it you can see water percolating up and so uh even in the last few years there's been all this money spent uh to 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 shore up the dike because it's it's showing its age and there was a palm beach county commissioner whose district includes the western part of the county and she said, you know, in 1928, everybody said, we're okay, we've got time. Now, you know, what are the chances of a second hurricane? And she says, well, what about now? You know, we, we've been lucky so far. The dike has held. But if we get a hurricane next week, what's going to happen? Right, not to mention a hurricane like the 1928 hurricane. That's the thing, is it's not just a hurricane. It's a hurricane that has a huge size to it, so you get this big sweep of air, uh, like Katrina, like 1928, like 1926, like Irma, uh, that just pushes a tremendous amount of water. So, well, so, you know, so is there a consensus, Elliot, about uh, the, you know, the, the state of the dike and, and what it would stand up to, and, and uh, well, what are the emergency they, plans? Yeah, there there are scenarios, and, and surprisingly, um, the worst case scenario when they do these models and these these drills 
is not a 28. It's a Hurricane King, if you if you remember that. Sure, 1950. King, mm-hmm. Yeah, this one came up and and came up from basically up the middle of the peninsula, and that's the one that that is their worst case scenario. That's the one they think would do the most damage uh, to the dike. Um, they have a they have a scenario where the dike has breaches or or, or leaks or something. And basically, those towns around the southeast corner of the lake might be waist deep in water for two or three days. But obviously, in this case, they'd have everybody out. Uh, you'll notice that when a hurricane is coming in, a lot of times you'll see hurricane warnings or hurricane watches for the coast from, say, Vero Beach to, to, to the Keys. And then you'll also see that little orange line around Lake Okeechobee. And so if there's a hurricane, they're going to get those people out um, because they, they can't swear on what will happen to the dike. Again, we're not talking about a full collapse, but we are talking about water getting out. And the other big thing is, and I know we, I knew we were going to get to this eventually, is that one of the ways they keep the lake from being so dangerous is by keeping the water low. But they can't always keep the water low because in the in the dry season, they need water in the lake as a backup water supply. But then if you have the water too high, it's pressing on the dike, and there's a chance of it overflowing the dike, coming over the top. Uh, because if, if you have it near the top of the dike and a tropical storm like Fay comes along, or like Irene in 1999, which dropped 17 inches on my backyard in Boca Raton in 36 hours, you put that over the lake, all of a sudden you got a big problem. So what they do is when they've got a, a, a strong rain event coming through, they lower the water. They release water out of the lake to lower the water level and release the pressure on the dike. Well, when you do that, you are flushing millions of gallons of fresh water into these delicate estuaries uh, over by Stewart and over by Fort Myers. And we're seeing what's happening with these algae. Right. So this is this is the issue is they have this balance, and this is why it's so challenging. And uh, anybody that follows the news knows about the red tide off of the southwest coast and knows about the uh, tremendous algae problem along the Treasure Coast. And this is caused by the, the nutrients from these all kinds of things, from farm fields, from septic tanks, and all of that around the lake getting flushed out these two outflow canals, which have actually been man-made. Essentially, the Caloosahatchee was there, but has been turned into a Lake Okeechobee outflow. And the St. Lucie Canal is more or less a man-made structure to take pressure off the lake. But the the problem is that now when they put the water out there, they end up putting all these nutrients uh, out along the coast, and we end up with these disastrous algae bloom. So so that that's really the the combination of politics and uh environmental engineering that goes on. Now we're we're stuck with this until there is some some solution and what is there is there talk about a solution what what is the talk there? Well, uh up here in Palm Beach County and it's not just in Palm Beach County, it's it's been it's been a, a prime topic in the governor's debates and in the uh congressional debates. Uh, because I think people are realizing that um, uh, what happens, you know, in one part of the state, if it affects the economy and it affects the environment and if it affects tourism, because people don't want to come down to Florida if they think it's going to stink, uh, it affects everybody. People are getting that. They're starting to realize that. <clears throat> you can't, you know, if you're sitting in Miami, you're still affected if Martin County's economy collapses because nobody wants to come down and fish amid algae. People get that, and um, with with so many of the ca- gubernatorial candidates coming from either uh, South Florida or Central Florida, where this is literally in their backyard, um, it's become a very very hot political topic. So you've got this combination of: Do we spend the money to shore up the dike? What do we do about the water level? How do we clean? the water coming out of the lake so it's not pouring this algae out. Um, And then there's this plan to build this giant reservoir south of the lake that Governor Scott was talking about, oh, my gosh, five years ago now? I think Governor Chris was talking about it. Um, And we learned from the 28 storm what happens when people talk and talk and talk, and they say, well, we have plenty of time to work this out. We saw what happened. Right. There are competing interests in, in, in every one of these situations. There are competing interests. Exactly. For sure. yeah. uh, but, but, but again, the people who live around the lake are saying, just like in 26, you know, don't sit around and say, well, it's not going to happen twice. I mean, good grief. We had two hurricanes three weeks apart in 2004 up on the Treasure Coast. Um, and so 
this algae mess doesn't even take into consideration what would happen if a strong hurricane came into the lake next week or in a month. Right, right. All right, so the your book, the Black Cloud, the Deadly Hurricane, 1928, Elliot. You said it was updated. Is it? Uh, it's still available on Amazon. I know. Is it available around town? We did. We we uh, the Florida Historical Society published a new edition about two years ago, in which we updated it to include the 2004-2005 seasons uh, and Katrina, and to to update various other parts of the book. Um, and it's also out in audio now. And what I tell people when I do my talks is that um, if you know anything about history, you know that you have to learn from it. And the main lessons of the 28 hurricane are that people are, are manifold. One is that you see what happens when you mess with nature without giving it strong thought. And the other thing is that uh, hurricanes are the only natural disaster that you get to prepare for it. I mean, Brian, you've, you've talked about this many times. You've written books about it, that there's really no excuse not to prepare for a hurricane. And these people in 1928 didn't have that option. They had nowhere to go. But today, people do. And so that's that's probably the, the most important lesson of the 28 storm, is to realize that storms kill more through water than wind, that a storm can do damage inland, that when a storm hits the coast, it doesn't vanish, and that you really have to know, what am I going to do? Where am I going to go? How am I going to prepare myself? Exactly. All right, Elliot Kleinberg, thank you so much uh, for being with us. So we look forward to I look forward to the update in your book. I haven't seen the, the the new version. I have the older version. Black Cloud: The Deadly Hurricane of 1928. Elliot, thanks. Have a good thank day. Thank you. All right, take care. So the Lake Okeechobee situation, for, you know, it's an underappreciated uh, issue with life in South Florida, I think, and uh, it's not underappreciated if you live in in Stewart or along the Treasure Coast or if you're suffering under the red tide on the southwest coast because of what's going on around the lake. And the the way that that all happened is, is a fascinating story. Uh, Napoleon Bonaparte Broward was the governor, and he actually ran on the platform of putting in these canals and draining the lake and, and draining the, the uh, fields to the south of the lake, controlling the lake is a better way to put it, not really draining the lake, draining the Everglades so that they could put in farm fields and put in, by the way, the suburbs of Miami-Dade and Broward uh, County. So most of the folks that live in our metropolitan area actually live in uh, Everglades that were drained because of Governor Broward uh, way back then. But it's a very, very interesting, complex, and important story for South Florida, not to mention uh, what happened in that hurricane. And and as Elliot said, um, 1928 was a year with three hurricanes. You, you just, uh, you never know. It's part of life here in the Sunshine State. So our, our podcast today is sponsored by your neighbors at Miccosukee. They, at the Miccosukee Tribe, rain or shine, win big, visit miccosukee.com and discover the winner in you. Uh, before we leave, I, I wanted to talk just a little bit more about this same hurricane because the, uh, the Okeechobee part of it, because we live in the, on the mainland here, is the most important part. 3,000 or more people uh, died around Lake Okeechobee in that storm. But in Puerto Rico, up until Maria happened last year, this was the storm of record. It was called the San Felipe Segundo uh, hurricane in Puerto Rico. And it's called Segundo, means second, because back then the way hurricanes were named were for uh, saints' feast days on the Catholic calendar. And it turned out that the day uh, that it hit, September 13th, was San, or Saint, we would say in English, St. Philip uh, Feast Day, or in Spanish, San uh, Felipe Feast Day. And uh, so it turns out that <laughs> 52 years before, in 1876, they had another hurricane in Puerto Rico on that same date, and that was the San Felipe hurricane. So this one was San Felipe Segundo. But it's still a hurricane that is uh, talked about in in Puerto Rico and uh, and the Caribbean islands because it killed uh, over 3,000 people uh, on that island as well. But they did have, uh, no, let me take that back. The previous hurricane uh, there killed over 3,000 people. And this one, the, the official death toll was about 300 or so because they had good warnings. They credited the national, uh, what was called the Weather Bureau at the time, with giving them good warnings, which is ironic considering the fact that really the warnings for the southeast coast were not good. They really thought the storm was going to uh, move 
to the north. Uh, one more follow-up from last week. So last week I mentioned that uh, we're talking about August hurricanes affecting South Florida and Southeast Florida, Miami-Dade, Broward County. And uh, I said, okay, I had forgotten one, Katrina, uh, for some reason in my mental list of hurricanes. And I forgot another one, too, which I, I, for many years I was unaware of, and it just always escapes me. Turns out there was a hurricane in 1891 that came over Homestead. There wasn't much in Homestead, wasn't much in the southern part of Dade County in 1891. So never got much, much... Um, Attention, certainly in Florida, but it did in the Bahamas. But technically speaking, just to be sure the record is clear. So here are the August hurricanes. Yeah, we had an August hurricane that came right over Miami Beach, uh, Category 3 in 1888. And that's the earliest August hurricane that hit on the 16th of August. And then you have 1891 and uh, in the August hurricanes. Of course, we have Andrew and we have Katrina and Cleo in 60. So it doesn't happen very often. Most of the hurricanes in South Florida are in September and in uh, October. So we have a, a ways to go in hurricane season. All right, that's our uh, podcast for this week. Uh, uh, Luke is going to be back next week. Uh, let me remind you again that the podcast is sponsored by your neighbors at the Miccosukee Tribe. Rain or shine, win big. Visit Miccosukee.com. Discover the winner in you and check out all the things that they're up to. If you have any questions you'd like us to talk about here on the podcast, uh, you can send me an email at weatherpod, the two words together, weatherpod at wplg.com. I'm Brian Norcross in the WPLG Local 10 podcast studio here in South Florida. Thanks for listening this week, and we'll talk to you next week.